Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Nicola Soderland, managing partner of Echo Rights, E1 Family Brands President Olivier Dumont, and Executive VP of Content Sales Monica Candiani, and Lineup Industries co-founders Ed Lewerse and Julian Curtis about what the lack of physical markets means for them right now and the focus for each of their businesses. Swedish distributor Echo Rights was snapped up two years ago by South Korean entertainment giant CJ E&M. With Korea the country of honour at this year's MIPCOM, albeit without the physical celebration in Cannes, Echo managing partner Nicola Sunderland spoke to me about the region's growing significance, the shifts in Nordic and Turkish drama as a result of the pandemic, and why the outlook for European producers and distributors remains positive despite the lack of physical markets. Well, for us, it hasn't changed that much anyway, the pandemic, because we are already a company which has been working. We have four offices all around the world. So from a, from a you know, company perspective, we haven't changed our, our way of working that much. And uh, so, so because we are so spread out over the world anyway, we have you know, offices in Seoul, Madrid, uh, Istanbul and Stockholm. So we're used to that, actually. Then it, in terms of what you know, the sales has been and the, the, the state of the market, spring was pretty good for us it wasn't that much of a change it was a bit of a dip during the summer but now i think it's picking up again and i think the last quarter it seems really good and and so we we're you know we're absolutely fine because of course since all the productions have stopped in many territories you can sell what you have on the shelf basically catalog and also new projects and as for sweden for instance we never stopped the the production so we kept on producing here so we have some new fresh titles to bring out to the market now which is really exceptional, I think, and very, very uh, rewarding in that sense. We are living in a very strange time, I think, you know, there are so many conflicting uh, movements. On one hand, all the, 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 the platforms are coming in and they are actually asking for, for a lot of, of content and they need a lot of content. So I think the coming years will be fantastic for European production. Since it stopped so much in the US, there's not much coming up to there. So they really need content to fill up their grids and also they need local content. So for European producers, fantastic coming years, I think. But on the other hand, I think there is a, a, a the output is too big and there's not enough consumers, eyeballs, and people who are willing, willing to pay for these platforms so it's going to be in a couple of years a lot of consolidation and mergers so so that's what that's a good side i think on the on the on the bad side is that the, the commercial free tv stations are suffering a lot of course of the decline of, of the ad revenues uh, and they're going to suffer a lot and if they haven't you know turned you know done their digital transformation early enough and have the you know the, the relationship with the viewers directly they are will be in big trouble many of them and also the the other the other ones are of course the the public service stations which are under in many countries they are under political threat like in the, in the UK you know that that's quite common in many many places so I think it, it's a very mixed picture and very hard to tell what the you know what the market will will head to we're middle of a revolution of the digital revolution and we don't know yet the only thing we really know for sure is that we don't know so um, uh, it's it's going to be very very interesting to to see and as for us. I think our raison d'etre is that we will help the producers to really to maximize the revenues because in this in this market, this landscape 
Okay, there are so many different windows, so many different outlets that we can help them to, to really place and to, to divide the, the rights in so many places as possible and place them in so many different windows as possible and to, to, to really to, to, to match the revenues for them. Which means that we need to be much in, in more involved in productions at an earlier stage. So it's a different way. I mean, in a way, we are like, you know, executive producers as well, because we help them to package, to finance, to market and to sell the shows. So we are much more involved in projects than, than before, which I think is, is more, from my personal point of view, more interesting. Which territories have been most interesting for you in the last six months? And what sort of movement have you seen on a, on a sort of global basis in terms of demand for programming? Yeah, we, we are, you know, we have three legs that we stand on. We stand on uh, a tradition we've been known for selling Turkish drama series, as you know, and it's been re- really rewarding. And for the, so that's so it's different. It depends on the, on, on the type of on the genre. The Turkish series we sold a lot to Latin, a lot to Latin America, to Eastern Europe, to Mena, to Asia, and also to, to some extent, like in Spain. They are in prime time now and they're doing really well. So it's coming there as well. That's been fantastic. Then we have the Nordic output, which is obviously mostly for, for Western Europe. That goes, you know, because it's more connected there. And then with the Korean series, as you know, we are owned by CJENM, which is the biggest media house in, in Asia. And uh, we have Korean series that we are starting to, to we are kind of spearhead, try to, to launch that, that stronger into Europe and to the rest of the world. And it's doing really well in Latin America. In Southeast Asia, it's dominating the, the whole scene. So that's something uh, we, can, we can build on. And have you found that um, new buyers for those kinds of programs have been emerging given that a lot of broadcasters or SVOD services are either running short of content because of the slowdown in production or because consumers are viewing so much content they need to, to stock their catalogs even more. Absolutely and I think Netflix has done a wonderful job here and I must you know uh, chapeau to them because uh, uh, they have gotten the viewers used to, to watch non-English drama. I'm speaking about Western European now which is amazing, like Casa de Papel, you know, the Money Heist and all these shows has really opened the market for non-English dramas, which is fantastic. And so that's absolutely a, a appetite for, for non-English. And in general, I mean, it's not, it's, I think viewers in general are much more open to see dramas on, on, on from other countries, like, you know, Parasite won the Oscar for Best Film. And that's from our mother company, CJNM. And I think that opens up for, for Korean series. They have fantastic series. And once you get used to them, I I think they are as good as anybody or even better than our series so uh, it's it's absolutely a big shift in the demand and to, towards non-english korean drama has been going through a, a very big kind of growth period i guess remakes of korean series is something which we've also seen a rise in and um, Netflix as you referenced there has been very active in terms of doing that but also the US networks uh, more broadly as well so how is that demand for Korean drama going? It is it is a very big interest for the for the formats and uh, we have I have two deals in Europe for that uh, uh, one is for TIF1 and one is for for Animal Shine in, in, in Italy and it's more coming and we have a couple of deals in going on in, in Turkey as well, so it's it's absolutely growing. Uh, one thing which happened after the pan, you know the pandemic, since all the production stopped, what has what have the producers been doing during that time? They've been developing their shows. So now there's a huge pile of development projects that are taken to the market. So it's a big competition actually now. 
And of course, the producers, they prefer their own homegrown things that they've done, developed themselves in, in, term, you know, in favor for that instead of buying formats. So it's a bit more tricky situation, I would say. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it's, you, you get so much things for free when you buy a format. So uh, it's, there's still a big, huge demand for that. What about the demand for European drama? And um, I guess particularly the traditionally sort of darker drama that Scandinavia has been known for in these times are viewers kind of seeking lighter entertainment and broadcasters and, and SVOD players keener to, to buy those types of shows? I think so, yes. Because, I mean, now everybody's doing Nordic noir. You have Spanish noir, you have Russian noir. Everybody's doing noir now, Italian noir. So I think there's been kind of a fatigue of this to see tortured babies and lying in the snow. You know, so we have to reinvent ourselves here in the Nordics, I think. And uh, there is an appetite for more lighter fare, like we call it blue sky crime or relationship dramas, relatable things that you can relate to. I think that is very much uh, in demand. And Hammerick is a good example of that from uh, world-renowned novelist Camilla Leckberg. She's, she's sold 22 million books in 60 countries. And now for the first time, she writes directly for TV. It's a, a blue sky crime relationship drama in combination. And it's stories with ordinary people but with her kind of magic she adds to it uh, she makes it really compelling and I can assure you that it's really a, a something you want to binge so um, of course in given the the troubled times people don't want to see other people in trouble because they don't trouble themselves more or less. I think they they want to see something which is lighter on the TV and and uh, so definitely there is a tendency towards towards lighter things. But nevertheless, crime is still a genre that is very much in demand still, and it will always will be. It's just the tonality of it a little bit that's shifting. I think the the, the fact you've been able to continue to produce in Sweden throughout this period, how significant is that in terms of continuing to drive the pipeline of programs that you're able to present to the market. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely very advantageous for us. And uh, we are like six, six months ahead of everybody else or even nine months ahead of everybody else. So that, of course, it's a huge, huge advantage. And Korea as well, I guess, has also Korea. been... Korea as well, yeah. And Turkey started quite early as well to, to start producing. And they, they have so short between, you know, the commissioning and when it's on air, it's just, you know, very, very, very short. It's maybe just six weeks or something. So they're much more agile than we, we, we are. And they, they kind of re, they write the, 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 the scripts ongoingly, you know, on during the, the, the recording. So they can change the course, the, the, the course of the, of the storylines according to what the, the, the viewers like. And they look at the minute ratings so they can say, oh, they don't like that one. Then we take him out. You know? So they are very, very adaptive in that sense and uh, and very quick. They still produce with high quality. I mean, it's amazing what they do. And are all the indicators that, you know, the production will, will continue in the same way in, in these territories, sort of moving forwards in Sweden, everything's kind of progressing? Everything, yes, is progressing. And I know Viaplay has been very active. Everybody's very active to, to, to commission things now. So it's really, uh, here is full steam ahead, actually. You mentioned the turbulence, the, the 
the, the turmoil that we're seeing. The industry's already in a period of incredible technological change, throw a pandemic into the situation and it accelerates and adds a completely different dynamic to all of that as well. Prior to all of this happening and in the midst of it, the US studios have been rolling out an increasing number of direct-to-consumer services and taking back rights to their own programs for those services. What has that meant for a distributor like you? Well, it means that there are big holes in the grids of local asphalt players. I'm speaking about Europe now. Uh, local TV stations. They, that that hole, those holes must be replaced with something. So that's, something, that's also something I didn't mention that before, which also speaks in favor of local production of, of European drama, because that's the only way they can fill it in with, you know. If all the American series are taken out, then they have to put something else there. And in a way, I wonder how much they will take to their streaming services, because the revenue from the sales to all these TV stations in Europe has been substantial. That's been what they've been living on. And to stop that, maybe that could be very counterproductive. So they will have to find kind of middle way there I think or just the first window or something like that and just finally um, a few thoughts about the conference and the the physical market circuit as well the absence of those events for example MIP TV and MIPCOM how has that changed the game for you I think you know with the existing client doesn't change that much because you know them and we do like this so that's kind of okay but with new clients I think it's a bit of a challenge because our business is a people-to-people business it's relationships it's about trust and that is much easier to achieve if you speak to them in person than it is on a zoom like this zoom meeting like this uh, i think our way of working will change will not be so many markets that's been it's been, it's been over over you know too many markets I mean, we've, we've had stands on 15 markets around the world it doesn't make sense so uh, that would be replaced by these video meetings instead but it's still i think uh, the the physical meeting was i think still we need it Nicola Soderlund from Echo Rights. It's just over a year since US-based toy giant Hasbro acquired transatlantic producer-distributor E1 in a deal valued at $3.8 billion. The transaction closed in December, just a few months before COVID-19 turned the world upside down, but the two companies have now brought their respective operations together and family brands President Olivier Dumont and Executive VP of Content Sales Monica Chiandiani spoke with Nico Franks about the process and how the company is adapting to the absence of physical markets and embracing new virtual ways of working. So it's been a, a, a busy actually uh, spring, more than summer I would say. The restructuring has meant that and the acquisition has meant that all content business is now sitting under the E1 banner, whether it's film and TV or the family brands, which means that we are responsible for the content development, production and distribution of the combined portfolio of kids' properties, which now encompasses, of course, you know, all our preschool brands. So, you know, Peppa Pig, PJ Mask, and Ricky Zoom, amongst others, but also My Little Pony, uh, Transformers, Power Rangers, and all their different iterations, uh, particularly for, for, for Transformers. So that's all now sitting under the E1 family brands banner when it comes to content. What was behind the thinking of E1 kind of taking the mantle in terms of the kids and family distribution and acquisitions rather than Hasbro, which is, you know, a toy company. It's got a, a name that's synonymous with kids. 
I, I guess, you know, sort of you said that Hasbro is a toy company and E1 is a content company. And the idea is, is to, you know, sort of in, in terms of the marriage is to make sure that everyone plays to their strength. And so that E1 would manage all the content and that Hasbro would manage all the consumer products and toy business. But when you look at sort of the, the acquisition, it just it's really like two pieces of a puzzle fitting together in the sense that they were very strong on older kids, particularly on the action adventure side of things and also fashion brands like, you know, My Little Pony. And we were very strong in preschool, even if we were developing brands for an older demo and that, you know, there'll be more around this probably next year in terms of green light. But, you know, the acquisition has meant that instantly those two pieces, you know, sort of all put together to form a combined portfolio that can address all the key demographics uh, when it comes to kids programming. And Monica, in terms of the two companies, what have you learned from Hasbro and what do you think Hasbro has been learning from E1 since the, since the deal took place? So I'm now responsible of uh, a combined team, uh, meaning some of the executive, uh, the sales director, uh, were previously in all Spark distribution and now are working with me. So we have a diversified uh, really team and uh, it's been interesting because obviously we have done the integration during the lockdown and in particular has been uh, quite an interesting uh, thing to do from home, working from home. We, we went well since day one because at the end of the day the goal, the targets were uh, to support uh, the business and to place uh, the shows so I think we were complementary. Uh, so we didn't, uh, I would say, we didn't struggle a lot. Uh, yeah, we had to adjust a little bit the way of working uh, because they were, like Olivia said, more stronger maybe in boys' action, whilst uh, this part of the team was more was stronger in uh, preschool and the way we managed the preschool. But at the end of the day, we divided the world in a way that everybody's got both. So it's not that we divided by uh, gender, uh, but just by territory. So, so we adjusted ourselves and they adjusted themselves. And now we are a team. I would say now we are fully uh, operative. And uh, I think everybody's happy. And, and I think what, what's important to note is that obviously, you know, sort of the, the teams respectively dealt with a lot of the same clients, but there were clients that were more important than others. And I would say, you know, sort of because obviously if you're targeting older kids, uh, an action adventure, t- the Turner channels in particular, you know, were, you know, a, a big partner uh, of, you know, on Transformers or Power Rangers, for instance, as opposed to, you know, for, for us, it would be other partners, you know, sort of the Nick Juniors, the Disney Juniors, because they're preschool, they're preschool partners. But we also dealt with Turner to some degree, and they also dealt with some of our, you know, sort of, of the of the partners um, that we that we dealt with. But now we're operating at the highest level, I would say, with all of these different partners, because we have, you know, a portfolio that addresses all of those target demos. And one of the recent deals that's been announced has to do with uh, My Little Pony, so Pony Life, the brand new 
40 by 11 series. So that's premiering in select territories this fall. Tell me a bit about those deals. So they're with terrestrials rather than digital platforms. So does that speak to something of a resurgence in broadcast viewing at all over lockdown? Um, No. um, So this is quite a a normal way of working for us, meaning we still focus firstly on terrestrial and then on digital. Indeed, we are already planning some digital deals, but the, the collaboration between the broadcasters and our local brand marketing team to support the show is a key element to make it successful. And you can work very closely with a broadcaster on the marketing side more than with a platform. And also is our traditional way to continue to work with some because some of the partners on board have already uh, some seasons of My Little Pony, so it was uh, it was normal to go first with them. And how have you seen the demand for family content and kids programming change over lockdown? Have you got anything left to sell? Has has it all been sold out? Well, there is still always something to sell. <laughs> Would say Peppa is sold but not out. Much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but not much. Peppa is sold out. Um, PJ is uh, really sold out. Yeah, if I have to think about, uh, yeah, you are right. There is almost everything sold out. <laughs> but it, what happened? during lockdown is the fact that we did get demand to relax rights a little bit so that digital platforms could have a little bit more so we were able to you know sort of to open up a few of those platforms to get a little bit more content that what they were contractually unable to 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 have and uh, during lockdown uh, we granted also uh, some rights to exploit a pepa in english in some territories where english is not the first language because they were using the opportunity to entertain the kids at home uh, with something also I wouldn't call it educational yeah educational because it was to introduce kids to English Papa is used a lot in that way yeah so during lockdown we gave them more rights and other opportunities have popped up so I noticed when I was watching TV and there was a Peppa Pig advert directing kids and families how to wash their hands so how how have you been looking at the pandemic and ways to kind of grow the reach of your brands in different ways we've done this for Peppa and we also have a clip that was produced a bespoke clip that was produced for PJ Masks about well it wasn't really social distancing it's more about making sure that you you know sort of if you have a runny nose that you use a tissue and then you use it once and then you throw it away so we produced that specifically for that so that broadcast part and then you know gave the content to different platforms whether linear or digital so that the message would come across and it's a lot easier to teach these uh, messages to kids if it's with characters that they already really love and engage with so yeah we did this for both Papa and, and PJ Masks. We're seeing now lots of different events adapt to the situation and obviously at those events you'd be taking pictures for new programming new ideas new ip how are you approaching that at the moment and over the past few months and looking ahead given that it doesn't really look like we're going to be able to go back to large full-scale events anytime soon 
How are you looking at getting that development of IP in the pipeline? So it's interesting because we're getting a lot of requests to take pictures via LinkedIn in particular. I've been contacted a lot through that channel and otherwise just content producers and owners who know us obviously from the past who have pitched us projects in the past who are just contacting us via email because they have our details and can get in touch that way. So there's a lot of that going on and therefore, you know, pitching over Zoom, which you don't build relationships as much, but when you're evaluating content, I don't think really that it's an issue so much to be pitched by digital platforms. I think the challenge is for uh, those uh, small uh, distributors or small uh, companies that don't have uh, the contacts. Uh, that's the challenge because they don't know how to build a relationship. So I would say that probably should be the responsibilities of uh, those that arrange markets uh, to facilitate uh, more uh, the small uh, distributors or uh, creators to help them more. I was part of an initiative like this. It was more about sort of students that are coming onto the job market and trying to give them an opportunity to put them in front of either recruiters or, you know, or, or mentors that can sort of give them advice. So there was that going on. But I know that the same phenomenon is happening also with smaller producers. Obviously, there was Forum Cartoon that took place also online. And that was super interesting, you know, because on the content production or acquisition side, which is how I was looking, obviously, at these projects to see that if there was something in there for us, it was a very efficient way of doing it. Because if you realize fairly quickly that the project's not going to work for you, then you can, you know, you can move on quite quickly to the next project because they're all available to view online. And obviously also, you know, the nervous producers who would have a little bit of a tough time pitching it on stage, you know, obviously here they've been able to record that presentation. So that means that the quality of the presentation was pretty high, I have to say, which was pretty good. So I think it's interesting to see how those all these other ways of doing business, which are, you know, sort of coming on pitching and, you know, building those relationships, which are coming alive. It's hard to engineer serendipity going back to Monica's point about at markets, if you're having a drink and then there's a buyer and then you can, you know, maybe join a group and then, you know, sort of start talking and start building relationships. So it's really hard to do this clearly, but there's other ways probably which are coming to allow to put your project in front of buyers. But yeah, it does seem like the industry is going to suffer for that lack of kind of those serendipitous moments and the networking in hotel bars, things like that, that do kind of foster those relationships that perhaps can go on to to bigger things. Yeah, you know, I think you're right, Monica. It's really Mm -hmm. small companies or individuals, but overall, these are not, you know, it's that first step, but then it takes sometimes years for it to become something, right? So I think there might still be other ways that those projects, I mean, I, I, I don't think the impact will be fairly imminent. Maybe we'll have a repercussions, but I would say, you know, it's almost three or four years down the road. And maybe in the meantime, we'll have time to catch up. And because there's, you know, sort of a lot of those opportunities that give rise to programming being commissioned are still happening in a different format, if you want. You know, if you are a salesperson and you work for a smaller company, I remember in the old times how tough it was to get a meeting and I had to spend maybe some time in front of a panel uh, waiting for the panel to be over to catch the person and running 
after and all of that. Now you cannot really do it. So that's that's a part of that probably some junior or small sales executive. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. That's true. How about MIP Junior and MIPCOM? Obviously, in normal times, we'd be in Cannes this week, but obviously we're not. How are you adapting to the, the lack of a physical MIPCOM and MIP Junior this year? I decided to go to have a visit of Cannes anyway, because it's just uh, 20 minutes from where I am, <laughs> just to be to stay in touch. I'm joking, but yeah, I'm going to do that. Uh, we have um, registered all our shows uh, like normally we would have done. We have been doing a newsletter to all the buyers, uh, broadcaster, our partners, to present uh, uh, the new shows we wanted to be highlighted. And I'm receiving already meetings, requests, all virtual. So I would say, again, uh, for us, uh, probably is easy. It's not complicated. And that's the thing also is like, if you don't do it the week of MIPCOM, you'll do it a week later or two weeks later, or, you know, if all our trailers are ready this year. But if there's something else which is in production and you want to show a clip and it's available in a few weeks, and you'll organize the meeting then, right? So, you, so you're not bound by any specific date, which is kind of comfortable in a way. And because we have all those relationships already established and I, I'm not sure how much will be fully missing as a result. Olivia Dumont and Monica Candiani from E1. Amsterdam-based format specialist Lineup Industries has recently seen ABC go to air with a US adaptation of Belgian series Emergency Call. Co-founders Ed Lewis and Julian Curtis spoke to Clive Whittingham about the series, the rapidly changing status of blue light formats amidst the pandemic and Black Lives Matter movement, plus the continued significance of markets like MIPCOM. We felt, I think, at first that maybe it was a show that had been done um, when we were first pitched it. And, and then we, we actually took a look at it and felt that it was actually quite different from the usual blue lights shows that, that were around in, in the sense that um, it was the blue lights show where you didn't actually get to see any blue lights. And also different to, to most others, you usually didn't get the end of the story either, which tend to be the two key factors for this kind of show. So it felt very different. The way it was shot and the whole tone of the show was also quite different to anything we'd actually seen. But also it was much more about the characters themselves, um, necessarily, you know, more so than the emergencies. And I think, you know, we when we picked it up, one of the things that particularly struck us is that the time at which it came out was around the time of the terrorist attacks in Belgium in France. So it, it had quite a deep impact, I think, when it went on air. And one of the things that really struck us was that it was something which the government got behind themselves. What we've noticed is that this is a difficult show to, to start out in the beginning because people are quite reticent about allowing camera crews into 911 and 911 or 999 rooms. But what we came to find was that the story of these people is quite an amazing one. They get to deal with a lot of the stuff that you don't get to hear about. Uh, a lot of it's very, very hard work. I mean, they, are, they get the first call from someone in distress and they have to calm them. And, and we found that the stories of these people was compelling. And how did they come to deal with such things, not knowing what happens after the phone's gone down and the units have responded? So, you know, it was psychologically quite tough for them. And, and the, the character study that we saw from the Belgium show was quite powerful, but all the more powerful at the time that it came out in Belgium because of the fact that there were these terrorist attacks. And it actually 
for the audience back home, they, they felt like there was always somebody at the end of the phone, no matter how bleak things looked. And for the government, and the reason why they supported it was because it showed these people as, as people who turned up to work every day and had to deal with a lot of people were phoning up about completely spurious cases. And a lot of governments and police and, and, and those kinds of people run campaigns to try and reduce what they call in the business pollution, pollution yeah. calls. And what, what was quite clear after the first season in Belgium was that, that it had a huge effect on those kinds of calls. Um, and, and we felt that that was actually quite a nice sales angle, but also quite a useful job that this series does. Um, and I think that, that that was really helped in selling the show in terms of getting the foot in the door in other countries. And, and actually, one of the second countries that we sold it to was in France, in fact. We also had just had that was, uh, you know, after Charlie Hebdo and all of these kinds of things. And, and again, you know, a lot of the reasons behind that was the same reasons, the, the, uh, or they gave the same reasons, that this gave an insight into people's, you know, the fact that these are not just faceless people. These are people who actually have families, need to go home after work, and they've had, you know, all this kind of very intense work days. And, and it was the same reaction everywhere, whether yeah. it was Germany, France, and the Netherlands, all the places where, where we first produced the show, we had exact same feedback. Tell me a bit about the deal in the US, how long you guys have been negotiating it. Is it, is it a result of the pandemic that they've been looking for sort of blue light formats, or is it a coincidence? This was way before the uh, pandemic, way, way before. Because we had a pilot made longer than a year ago. First of all, we have great partners in, in the US, uh, a company called Eight Hours with Johnny Slow and Adeline Rooney. They've got a fantastic track record and we really teamed up. But it just it takes long, especially with these kind of factual entertainment shows. And, you know, we got one of the biggest networks. We have them buying our formats, which is fantastic. And that it just takes longer. Are blue light formats, do we think they are going to be more popular moving forward? Because obviously there's focus in every country about key workers and health service, very sort of on trend and on brand at the moment. Do we think blue light formats in general are going to be more popular? I don't know. I think the right ones will be. Um, I think, you know, exactly what you say about the key workers, you know, these these are key workers, you know, the, I think the difference here is that these are people who work across fire, police, ambulance and so on, you know, and, and of course one of the worries in America was with the whole um, situation as it is now with, you know, police and defunding the police and so on and so forth, where there's kind of, you know, black mark against the police specifically. Well, that's why um, cops got cancelled, of know, Live PD. And, and that's because, you know, I think they show the, the, let's say, the end result, whereas we're there in the first seconds where people are trying to help. And, and I think you can't mistake what the people in our show are doing as helping. You know, they're there, they're holding people's hands and you know, it's quite traumatic for them in many cases. So, um, yeah, I guess there will be more shows. I, I don't know exactly what form they will take. I suspect it will be key workers within other shows, maybe game shows, winning things, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. But, you know, our show focuses on people who are seldomly ever seen and they're really there to help up until you know the others arrive how does the audience react to that like you say you don't get to see the the end of it how does the audience react to that lack of closure almost well that's interesting because the buyers normally they always wanted to they, they initially always said that's an issue you know we need to have conclusion but then when people start watching episodes they it's the opposite then you understand hey there's also this 
a bit of a roller coaster ride and you don't know how it ends, but you also give this certain tension. So sometimes there is conclusion, quite often not. In the very serious, like big ones, especially where they're kind of quite heavy cases, so especially if like kids are involved, then there is a, a I guess, a mechanism to give inclusion where you will, for instance, get call takers speaking with each other about what happened. And that's kind of a device to make the audience feel that there is some form of conclusion to it, whereas you won't know what happened two years down the line. The, the other thing is that even legally, sometimes it's hard to actually give those answers because everything is done anonymously. All of the calls are done anonymously, a lot of them are retaped, and sometimes some details are changed if they're cases that might make it to the press to, to guarantee anonymity. So, yeah, you know, sometimes we just can't do it. But in none of these series abroad, there's conclusion on all the topics. Nobody has done that, and one shouldn't. Because that takes away the tension. But it also puts you in the position that the whole idea of this show is to put you in the position and the way it's filmed and everything about it puts you in that 911 room. It puts you there and you feel the tension. It feels quite raw and, and immediate. You know, and, and those the call takers don't know. So you're in their shoes. That That's really part of the show anyway. Are there any other trends that you guys have, have seen? I mean, the two that sort of immediately spring to mind us in formats, like stuff that can be shot at home or limited crews and also sort of tried and tested old formats that could maybe be adapted you know just take the studio audience out have you seen those trends or anything else that have grown up out of the horrors of 2020 i get the feeling that the buyers are getting really COVID tired so they don't really like to look at new ideas you know that's filmed from home or without audience I think that the buyers wanted to go back to normal as soon as possible. And, uh, but that's my, my, my experience. I think that's the case. I think people are, well, I think they're tired of being pitched yeah. COVID ideas. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can film this with only three people on a Zoom call, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I think people are also taking quite a grown up look at what are the existing formats and how might they be adapted so that they look the same, but might well be filmed in a different way. So, and, and that, that typically within our catalogue, at least has been um, game shows. Uh, and different ways of doing, I mean, we, we have, for instance, uh, an interview show, which we're launching from Japan, which um, has puppets in it. So it's, you know, it, it's going to be an old way of doing a show. And, uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, a format that you've seen uh, loads of times. It's not been developed for COVID. It just happens to be that you could make it that way quite easily and quite simply um, without it, you know, looking like we're all on a Zoom call. Um, so I think, you know, there, there'll be a lot of that. Um, we, have a, we have a Belgium show called One Year Off. They just finished the filming the second season. And what they've done is 16 candidates throughout 13 episodes and they just worked around the COVID. So they, there's, there's four bubbles, you know, of uh, candidates. Uh, they get tested in between blocks. And it's just like an emergency plan they have, you know, if case one of the candidate proves to be a positive and they immediately can put someone else in, there's less audience. But for the rest, for the viewers, the way they've shot it is exactly the same. So I, I think it's much more about protocols and how those can be rolled out rather than necessarily coming up with new formats that look like they've been made. And, you know, they'll, they'll look incredibly dated in hopefully a few months' time. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is that how you guys spent your summer? Just going through, the, going through your catalogue and being like, well, we could do that. We could just take the audience away or we could do that if we just do yeah, it like this. That, definitely. But we felt already very soon that the buyers want to have a good product and you know if you have a show that works they'll take it how does it work being a distributor when there aren't 
big markets and conferences to go to and distribute and sell? We don't really have the answer to that yet. You know, I, I think anyway, if you look at it as selling seasons and you look at it as the spring selling season, that didn't work. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think everyone was in a panic. Nobody really knew anything that was going on. People were attending pitches and giving pitches, I think, in a kind of somewhat of a stupor uh, just to, you know, do things. But I think, you know, people have kind of come to adapt the new situation, you know, and, and we'll be able to do our pitches and we'll be able to do things online and, and so on. But, you know, you would always miss that deal that only happens because you're walking through the Palais corridor and you bump into someone that you have that conversation. Um, so I think that will always be missed for as long as this continues. But at the same time, I think people are just getting on and, and dealing with it. We're lucky because both of us are in the business almost for three decades. So we know the people, it's easy for, for us to pick up the phone. I'm more worried, worried about the younger generation because, you know, you really need markets to, to get into it and to, to get to know the people and have, have the beer in the Martinez and, and really get to learn to, the, the people. And that, that, I think that, that's, more, that's, that's a bigger challenge. Building those networks will yeah. be difficult, I think, yeah. for, for a younger generation. Ed Lewis and Julian Curtis from Lineup Industries. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest news coming out of MIPCOM Online Plus, as well as elsewhere in the industry by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 